Welcome to the God is Not an Asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. I want to go back to what you opened with um, around the the uh, what I consider to be a very white desire to fix things, right? Mm. To, to fix everything, right? Um, because I, it, interestingly enough, that many of the conversations that I find myself in have to do with feminism, white feminism, yeah, um, black women's critique of white feminism, especially with yes. the Barbie movie that came out, um, and. You know, I think that white women in general tend to really move into that fix-it mode very quickly. We we want to just make everybody happy. Um, we want to, as a way to calm ourselves, our own nervous yeah. systems, I think. It, it's something that's been socialized into us, and we need to really look at that. Um, and I, I, I'm curious to know, I, I want to go a little deeper mm. into that urge to fix things. Mm. Mm. Um, and what do you think, because you also made a comment, like we were talking about how anger is valid in this, in Mm -hmm. this process, right? When I was talking about the moral arc of the universe, that anger is a part of that process. And, and so what does it look like to just sit with somebody's anger, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've often told that said is that a part of, a part of the labor that identities of dominance need to participate in, I believe, is to just be willing to sit yeah. in the presence of the full emotional spectrum of those who have been harmed, right? Yeah. yeah. To just sit there in that presence rather than try to fix or run. So I'm curious if you can say a little oh, bit my. more. Well, so important. Um, have, you, have you all ever had Randy Woodley on the podcast yet? I don't think I've seen him, but I we did yeah. you did okay okay it hasn't, it hasn't aired yet but yes. okay that's great because i just think he'd be a such a natural for this podcast i i'm just a huge fan of randy's the first time i met randy a mutual friend wanted us to meet and arranged our, us to meet we sat on a picnic table and randy i won't say that he was rude but he he like bam challenged me like he threw down the hard stuff right away. And I remember thinking, this isn't going well, you know? Uh, he, he just doesn't like me. Um, and, uh, and then after maybe 15 or 20 minutes, it might have been 10 minutes, it seemed like 20 or 30 to me, uh, he says, wow, you handled that really well. <laughs> and he says, one of the things I've learned with white people, and Brandy is uh, Cherokee, uh, Randy says, one of the things I've learned with white people is that if they're not willing to sit at the table with difference and tension, 
then you're not going to go very far with them. So he said, you handled that pretty well. And then we've been great friends uh, ever since, you know, and, uh, but I just think there is this, uh, there is this reality that there, we, we get born. It doesn't, if you're, if you're black, if you're indigenous, if you're Latino, uh, Latinx, if you're white, we get born into a story with centuries of momentum behind it that set up rules for the game that, you know, none of us made those rules. And in fact, most of us for at least eight or 10 or 15 years of our lives, and some people a lot longer than that, weren't even aware that they were rules of a game. You know, we just thought that it was reality. And so when we understand that, I think it helps us understand why people get so tense and why they get so, and, and, and white people who in a certain sense are the guardians of the normalcy that has harmed other people and created benefit for white people, when they want to get back to normal and fix things and keep things, keep things calm, they don't think that they're perpetuating harm. They think they're healing things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So a, a friend of mine who is a black biracial man told me, um, he said, I, when I know I can trust a white person when I can have a racialized conversation with them and they stay in the room and yeah. they, they're willing to have, I'm, they're willing to let me challenge because it shows me they have skin in the game. And I've never forgotten that. Yeah, you know, he said, he said, it shows me that they have skin in the game. They're willing to, to not always be right. They're willing to, to sit yeah. and, and, and hold that tension. So I think that that what you speak is, is very true. What you're, what because you're if they don't, Carrie, if, if they aren't prepared to do that, the, uh, the, the person of color will constantly be the recipient of microaggressions yeah. um, that have not been dealt, you know, from attitudes that have not been dealt with. And it's just too painful, you know, to just stay there. Just, you know, as Brian was saying, you know, it's time to leave the, the town. Yeah, yeah. And that's true of any, any dynamic. Uh, yeah. of dominance, right? So that's true of yeah. men who are willing to hold yeah. tension, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah. around, you know, women. It's, it's cops who are willing to hold tension with civilians, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. any power dynamic there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, ahead, and, uh, well, the only other thing I was going to say is that, um, here to me is like this crossroads that we face. It's like a test, a, a timed test that we will either pass or fail uh, in the next few years. We will either have enough people who learn, but let me say it this way. We will have enough white people who learn to hold the tension and then learn to speak to their fellow white people with well, enough SB. patience and graciousness to bring them along. Or we'll reach a point where some number of white people decide they can't win at this game and they, and then they return into their white supremacist, uh, fantasies, um, of, uh, of, uh, of a homogenous world again. So to me, this is like this tension going back to phases of work, being able to hold the tension becomes a really critical and, and then translate, uh, becomes really, really critical. I, I can't, I could not agree more with you on that. And that's why I do the work I do. And one of the things that I would just say to any white person who's saying, I, I, 
think I need to start using my voice now. I think I need to start doing this. Is that you're not going to, there, there's going to be people from all sides who are going to disagree, who are going to tell you that you shouldn't be doing this work, that you should be, you yes. should sit down and shut up, that you, yeah. that there's no need for another white chick's voice in this, in this conversation or a white man's voice in this conversation. That's going to happen. And we have to decide to be resilient in mm-hmm. that, right? Um, if we're really, yeah. if we're really, have skin in the game. I can tell that this is going to be yet another podcast that I'll go back and listen to at some point again. Mm-hmm. And it'll be as though I never uh, mm-hmm. heard it the first time because, I mean, this is this is so rich. Um, Brian, in a moment, I, I want to ask you about your Charlottesville experience mm-hmm. um, just a few years ago. But b- before that, you talked about being um, in East Africa, Central Africa, where, uh, you know, indigenous African um, Twa people, you know, are on, who live, live and for generations have lived on the margins. Uh, this past April, I was on a panel with three other people. Um, they, I'm the only one that doesn't have an African name, mm-hmm. um, but... The, the title was uh, International Migration Law and Indigenous Displa- Displacement in Africa. Yeah. Um, and, and that was sponsored by uh, a university in uh, Alberta, Canada. And, you know, this is another layer mm-hmm. um, that, that I think that we, we don't often, even people who are, you know, really conscious and and, and aware of uh, the need for change and for justice are not aware. We're, we just don't think about the, f- the fact that colonization has not only displaced people, but it has caused people to displace people. Uh, you know, and that's happened in, in on this continent. Yeah. Um, where people are displaced by displaced people. You have any thoughts about that? Oh my goodness. So, you know, th- this is another, so what I'm about to say, um, Carrie, this is the kind of thing that would get some people upset with me, uh, as a, as a white guy saying this. Um, but David, I think you, uh, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this, uh, uh, as, as a, a black man. Um, it feels like in the United States, our black-white problem is so great, and we have so much invested in needing to address and face and deal with that problem, that anytime you complicate the problem, some people feel you're fighting against the cause, right? So yes. for, for you to ask me that question invites me to complicate the problem. Um, <laughs> so I, I, a quick uh, uh, experience I had, I was in Kenya, and... Uh, at, at a, a gathering of all African people, I was one of the only outsiders, but everybody was from, from East Africa. I sat at lunch with a woman. Some of you, you might uh, remember, some listeners might remember, there was post-election violence in Kenya several years ago mm-hmm. um, that really upset people because Kenya seemed to be the one country that was relatively stable and to have this violence really, people were worried it could be the precursor to another another Rwanda was the terrifying thing that people said. I sat at lunch next to a woman. Uh, she told me her story. She was Pentecostal pastor. She'd been a co-pastor with uh, 
another pastor, and they were from two different tribes. Um, and uh, when this post-election violence happened, she got a knock on her door one evening, and in front of her door was a gang of people, uh, you know, 80, 90 people. And, and she was from the minority tribe in that village that was a much larger tribe nationwide, but in that tribe, she was a minority. And the people knock on her door. Her fellow pastor says to her, it's time for you to leave your, this village now. And uh, they had uh, cans of kerosene. They were going to burn down her house. And they, the people said, either you're in it or you're out of it. It's your choice. So she left and had been in a refugee camp for months since. Now, people, you know, a a lot of people find that hard to imagine. But look, people groups, there are these sociological problems you could that express themselves racially, tribally, regionally, Democrat versus Republican. And and I'll never forget this. It was one of the most inspiring conversations I've ever had. We're finishing lunch. And I say, to, and she said, and I, I forget the exact number. I've been in this refugee camp for 13 months already. Um, and uh, I said, well, what are your hopes? She said, well, I plan to go back to my village, rebuild my home that they burned down and resume being a pastor with the fellow who was part of the group who burned her house down and forced her to leave. And I said, how will you do that? She said, it's the gospel. We have to be reconciled. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my goodness, you know. But these are the stories that we hear. And, and w- what I think is strange for people in the United States is imagining that we're in a very, we are so much closer to those kind of situations than we realize, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. You talk about complicating. Oh. Um, so as we know, there's much more conversation around reparations uh, for the descendants of, of slaves uh, in this country. And one of the things that complicates the conversation, especially from when, when I try to insert, you know, uh, a point of view, um, is I, I, you know, I talk about the, uh, the 40 acres that uh, and, you know, on a mule, the 40 acres was, was a stolen 40 acres. Yes. <laughs> and there's, there's, uh, like a reluctance. Okay. So, so I'm thinking that reparations are justice, but they are justice within a racialized capitalist system. And because of that, because I think that, you know, the, the system is, is, clearly failing. So it is almost like giving, giving hospice care because I think that reparations are, are just, Um, but it's almost like giving hospice care because it actually approves of the capitalist state by engaging it. And it's a just way of elongating its duration uh, for a bit, whereas indigenous people, they, you know, the indi- indigenous nations are are not interested in the constitutional state that African Americans have historically sought to 
save or salvage. And so how can we have a conversation <laughs> around this when indigenous wisdom is not being, uh, is not a factor in all of this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> fix it for us, Brian. Fix yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, David, you just beautifully complicated that in a way that it needs to be complicated because here's the terrible thing that I could imagine. Well, let, let me make an analogy. I've seen an awful lot of churches and religious organizations and nonprofits work themselves into a terrible mess. And then they hire a person of color or a woman to lead the organization. <laughs> And yep. it's like, yeah. see, we're bringing equity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When it's uh, almost over. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We're, we're, yeah. We're, we're, yeah, we're giving these positions to people at the worst possible time with the least possibility of success. Yeah, and some of people course, would say that on Barack Obama uh, at his election, you know? It's yes, like, oh. and, and, and let them report to a board that won't let them do anything. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, right? a, that's like, Barack you know. Obama, too. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So, but it, it, the reason that I think is such a poignant question ultimately is when you bring up capitalism, you know, I, I think capitalism is one of those systems that still in many places, um, people are so identified with, they just stop listening to you when you criticize yeah. the system. Sacrosanct. But, and, and it, as you said, there are an awful lot of people who are part of the capitalist system and to give them reparations within that system is the only kind of reparations that would be meaningful to them mm. because it's the system they live in. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think we have to stand back and realize that the capitalist system, if that's part of it, I think I'll just say it, the capitalist system will destroy human civilization and maybe the human species and, and maybe life on earth if it goes on much longer. And so I wonder sometimes if what we need right now are some really good science fiction writers and really mm. good political theorists who could imagine a civilizational collapse and then people s saying in a certain sense, the collapse was justice upon the oppressors. And now how do we rise from those ashes? Uh, mm with the kind of justice that would be reparative going forward and learning from those mistakes. But it, that's not to short circuit the need for reparations in the shorter run, but at any rate, it's, yeah. Again, it it's where we are on the moral arc of the universe, right? Like, right, yeah. we're in a place where reparations are due, and yet that might not be the, the future that we're, we're all trying to imagine, right? I yeah. don't know, David, yeah. what, what, I didn't mean to speak on no, you, I'm sorry. I, yeah, well, you talked about uh, science fiction writers, and uh, what came to mind is uh, Octavia Butler. Yes. <laughs> yep. You know, a lot My of people are, are wearing T-shirts that say Octav Octavia tried to tell us. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, there's something to that. But anyway, um, Charlottesville. Yeah. Uh, mm. Talk to us about that. Well, uh, in 2017, I got a phone call from a dear friend who's, who uh, he and uh, uh, his wife were a clergy couple in Charlottesville. 
And I think I maybe introduced them to each other, had some role in them meeting each other. So I felt a deep connection with them. And they called me and they said, Brian, I don't know if you've heard about this, but we've had a series of Ku Klux Klan rallies in Charlottesville and um, other rallies. Uh, and now there's going to be a really big one in August of 2017. Um, and we want to have clergy present as a, as witnesses and as agents of peace. Um, and, uh, we're, we put out the call to clergy in our area and they said we've, had a surprising number of black clergy, a surprising number of rabbis, a surprising number of women clergy, but white male clergy, we haven't been able to get uh, many of them to come. And we know it's a long way, and we need to tell you it'll be really dangerous, but is there any chance you'd be willing to come? So um, uh, so I ended up uh, coming, and yeah, I was a witness of what happened uh, over that weekend. Do you, do you recognize the name Sahar Al-Sani? I don't know. Okay. She, oh, she's, yes. Uh, yes, 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 yes. She, I marched with her. Yes. 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 She mentioned that. She, yes. Uh, you know, I, in fact, I'm getting ready to talk to her in about a half an hour. Um, we're, we're close friends. And, you know, she, like my relationship with Carrie, lives on the other coast. Um, <laughs> she's in, in New York City. And Sahar, you know, she mentioned, um, the joy of of marching with you yes and, and yes you know here's the thing sahar you know she go i met her at standing rock in fact um but sometimes she finds herself in these situations and she's so vulnerable that it affects her health yeah um dealing with patriarchy dealing with yeah. white patriarchy yeah. uh she's a muslim so dealing with um you know, um ideology, religious ideology, living in this country as an American, you know, being born in, in Pittsburgh and living her whole life here, she deals with so much. And, and, and so her compassion has become oh. a liability. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering how, how you're looking at these folks who, who, whose very bodies are the target while they're trying to, you know, defend other people. You know, in this case, she's standing up for, you know, this and Standing Rock Sioux and for African-Americans in, in Charlottesville. Yeah. And let me just say about Sahar, um, that weekend uh, on the Saturday where everything went down, although Friday night was no Sunday school picnic either, but um, uh, I, I arrived late. My flight was late. And uh, so I arrived later on Friday afternoon, uh, Friday evening. And Friday afternoon, there was a mandatory training for everyone who is going to kind of march into the belly of the beast. And so mm -hmm. I wasn't part of that training, so I was uh, was not allowed to be part of the group that went in there. Um, Sahar was. And uh, I remember that day thinking a, a uh, you know, obvious Muslim woman walking into the middle of this hate storm um, incredible courage, but it does, it, 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 you, you, you do bear it in your body. And I was uh, about a block away observing all this, uh, uh, still in the fray, but not as much in the fray. I mean, they were having Coke bottles full of, filled with gravel. Wasn't this clever of these guys, um, these Unite the Right guys? They filled Coke bottles with sand and gravel 
but then made them look, or Coke cans, made them look like Coke cans so that uh, they could smuggle them in like this was just their drinks. And then they would throw these cans and then there were bottles of urine being thrown and bags of feces, feces being thrown. It was just this vicious, ugly thing to watch. Uh, and and Sahar and uh, Cornel West and Lisa Sharon Harper and several other friends were right in the middle of all this. And oh my goodness, what what a day. Um, but what it shows us, you know, what what that showed me as a, a, a white guy who has ancestors who've been in the United States since this, I think the 1600s, um, it showed me what's always there, this amount of hatred and vitriol and racism and, and latent, simmering, festering uh, uh, violence it is there. And, uh, and this is, again, one of those things where if we want to fix it, put a Band-Aid over it, it just goes underground and gets worse. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, now I forgot what your question was, but I just want to say people like Sahar have my enormous respect, but also the, this awareness that all of us have limits to what our nervous system can handle. Yeah. And we have to, part of loving our neighbors ourself means we love ourselves enough to know I wouldn't want to put my neighbor's nervous system in this much trauma. So I want to, uh, I don't want to put my own. Yeah. That, uh, thank you for that. I mean, that, you know, I'm going to mention that to Sahar. Yes. Uh, today. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. I, again, I just, um, I, I always coming from that story, I am faced again with the idea that what I think most of the, most people of dominance suffer from regardless of what what type of dominance that is um we suffer from a failure of imagination um those of us who who really want to be good right we want to be good people we want to we don't want to participate in systems of racism or sexism or homophobia we want to be good people but we don't uh we have a a failure of imagination about what the world would look like and what our role in that would be oh, um Right. And I'm thinking about a conference that I was a part of. Um, and I, this was a story I heard third, uh, secondhand, but I thought it was really powerful, which was um, this was a group that cared about sharing platform, making sure that the platform of speakers wasn't all white, um, all white men. And so it was a very diverse platform of, of speakers. And the one uh, spot for the white guy was taken. And, um, and there was another guy who said, you know, this is, this, I'm here for this. This is what I, I am all for this, but I don't know what my role is now because I'd, I would normally be up on that stage and I'm happy to give my, my spot up on that stage in, in, in service of this cause, but I don't know what I do with myself now. And I thought that was such a poignant story, right? And it speaks to the failure of imagination that we, we all, all identities of dominance experience about how to, what, what does it look like to have a world where, where nobody is throwing bags of poop at people, right? Like, how do we move away from such vulgarity and profanity? Yeah. You know, the, the idea of cultures of dominance uh, brings back, I told you about being in Kenya. 
a few months after I got home on NPR, um, there, they interviewed a Kenyan intellectual. I'm not sure who, who he was. And, um, to, for his analysis on what was going on in Kenya. And I, I remember at the end of the interview, the interviewer said, do you mind me asking which tribe you're from? Uh, because, you know, this was intertribal, uh, tension. And he said, I could answer that question. I'm not ashamed of my tribe. But he said, the truth is in Kenya, as in all of the world, there are only two real tribes, the tribes of the haves and the tribe of the have nots. And he said, suffice it to say, I am from the tribe of the haves and I've decided to use what I have in service of the have nots. And I, I just remember thinking, you just blew the top off of this interview <laughs> to bring people to a much deeper level than we normally go. And of course, you know, for me, that's so much of what Jesus was about, you know, the, that, that lordship is servanthood, uh, and that the greatest is the least. And, and, uh, so that's, yeah. And to me, this is where we've, we have a chance in the middle of this to, to actually find the treasures that have been buried in the field of our faith for a long time. So you just quoted Jesus. You articulated Jesus that um, most people could, would, uh, would recognize and, and appreciate. You know, a, a lot of people, you know, people who, who are listening to this, um, have been so traumatized, they could not actually quote the Bible, even mm. the parts that they, you know, ostensibly embrace still because they're human values. Um, what would you say to somebody who, who you know, might even be triggered uh, by something beautiful like that? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, first, uh, this is part of the challenge, isn't it? Everything, I, I would say to someone who feels triggered, I'm really sorry um, that happened. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would just say I'm really sorry that happened. Uh, and this is one of the problems of speaking to large groups of people. You can't tailor your message to every individual person's concerns. Um, but maybe, and, and that's all I would say, but in another setting, what I might say is that uh, every religion, I've had the privilege in these last 15 years or so to be involved more deeply than I ever have in working with counterparts in Islam and counter brothers and sisters and friends and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism. Tomorrow I have an interview with a, uh, a, a Hindu teacher um, who read my book, Do I Stay Christian, and wrote his own book that's basically, it's not called Do I Stay Hindu, but it's it's he's grappling with similar problems. So this yeah. great honor of being involved with people of other faiths, and we're all in the same boat. Our, our, our traditions have remarkable treasures, but yeah. they also have, can be abused. Like any tool can be used for healing or harm. Yeah. And, and the problem is if we say they've been used for harm, so I won't use them. Other people will keep using them for harm. <laughs> yeah. So this is why I feel if we can use them for healing, especially if that's what they're really about, I think yeah. we, we, some of us have to do that. 
so just digging a, a little deeper with that, um, there are people who are triggered by certain elements of their past, but many of them don't want to be triggered. Yes, yes. So yes. I, I, you know, and I think that probably Carrie and certainly I know for myself that there are things, there are reflections, and then I have to breathe and calm down and and say, you know, that's that's a that's a good thing. That's that there's beauty yes. um, in that in that place where you know. At one time I thought it was a garden, but it's a rose coming up out of the concrete. That's what it really is. It, <laughs> yes. you, you know, in my yes. mind, it was a garden at the time. Yeah. I recognize now it's not a garden, <laughs> right? So I want to still appreciate the rose. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. How yes. do I do that, Brian? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, look, we were talking about, you know, phases of work. There, there is scholarly work that can help us in these times. Um. I think of our friend Grace G. Sun Kim, who's writing a book, yeah. How God Became White. That's her next book. And, and what happens is when scholars go back and they tell us the stories behind things, and when they expose that this way of interpreting the Bible or the Quran or the Torah or whatever, that, that this way of interpreting the Bhagavad Gita um, has a history. And it's not the only way it can be interpreted. And here's another way to interpret it. And uh, that scholarly work opens up room. And, and when that room opens up, some people rush in to use it in a constructive and healing way. Other people dig their heels in to use it in a harmful way. And at that point, we realize that the text itself isn't the issue. Um, the issue is the hearts of the people who are working with the text. And this to me creates this fascinating moment when the hearts of people who are trying to bring healing within Islam and healing within Christianity and healing with Judaism and healing within the atheist community, because the same work is going on there. Um, at that point, the people with good hearts uh, have to understand that we're, we're in this together, you know. Um, and maybe that's one of the struggles, especially in those of us working in in spaces where we're trying to heal centuries of harm done by white supremacy, um, that we, we at some point have to stand back and think, do I think this person has a good heart? Well, if they have a good heart, let me try to work with that. And if I don't think they have a good heart, I don't need to waste my time in trying to appeal to them as if they did. And, that might and, and we'll be wrong some of the time, but at least we'll be we'll we'll be able to figure out how we were wrong. <laughs> uh, maybe a little more accurately. I don't know. Um, we are almost out of time, but this has been such an amazing and amazing conversation. And um, I'm I would love to have everybody um, hear the name of your book again and how they can stay connected with you so mm. that they can get that book and one or two or five of the other amazing the books. The whole library, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, the whole library. Well, okay, my, my publishers would be happy if I put in a little uh, a, a little promotion here. So my website's brianmcclaren.net. My most recent book is called Do I Stay Christian? And then I have a children's book that I co-authored with an Irish peace activist and storyteller, Gareth Higgins, 
uh, called Corey and the Seventh Story that comes out uh, very soon. And then Do I Stay oh. Christian will come out in May of, of next year. And can I just say uh, what a pleasure it is to be with you. And can I say... Wait, that, wait, wait, Brian. Yeah. That book is already out. Um, do is, I Stay Christian? Uh, uh, yeah, Do I Stay Christian is out. And Corey and the Seventh Story is out, but it's being re-released as a, a new children's oh. book. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and and I should say uh, that I I just one of the things I love about your podcast is that the two of you, your friendship and mutual respect, models so much of what we need. And <laughs> apart from anything that any of your guests say, you're doing such beautiful work. So thank you. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you so much for saying that. What an honor. Thank you. I, I went for a walk yesterday and one of my neighbors stopped me and he said, I've been listening to your podcast. And he said, you and Carrie are great together. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard that many times, actually. Yeah. But, you know, here's uh -huh. a guy just living down the street. Yeah. Uh, so thank well, you, Brian. Thank you yes, for thank giving you. us your time and giving your time and your heart to all of the people that will, you know, listen to this perhaps more than once because there's a healing element here. And so again, thank you so much. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole or text 805 703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.